Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I appreciate Luke reading uh, Stephen's account of Moses' life there for us in Acts chapter 7. In our Bible reading plan that we are seeking to do together as a congregation, we've now finished the books of Genesis, of Job, and of Mark, and we're starting to read through Exodus and through, through Hebrews. Our hope is that Hebrews will kind of line up with some of the law as it relates with that uh, quite a bit. But as we're reading through Exodus, we are introduced to one of the most well-known individuals uh, in the scripture. In fact, his name kind of becomes synonymous with the old law, and that is Moses, the leader of God's people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, the giver of the law, the, the messenger of the old covenant. And today I want us to talk a little bit about God's preparation and call to Moses. In fact, this job of leading uh, the Israelites out of Egypt is not a job that Moses had great ambitions for. Uh, even when directly commissioned by God, Moses is very reluctant to go. He basically begs God to send anybody else besides him. But I hope as we look at God's interaction with Moses here at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4, we can learn a little bit uh, for ourselves, make some application for ourselves about getting past our own excuses and fears and being obedient to hearing God's call in our lives, taking up our cross and following Jesus, even when that may be the last thing that our flesh wants to do. As we look at the life of Moses, I think the first thing that might be helpful to recognize is that God spends 40 years equipping Moses and then 40 more years humbling him. Uh, you can kind of divide Moses' life into three sections of 40. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years uh, in Midian, and then 40 years in the wilderness, uh, wondering uh, as he brings the, the people of Israel uh, up to the verge of the promised land. And after that first 40 years in Egypt, Moses thought he was ready to, to be a help to God's people. He had been raised uh, for the first few years of his life by his Hebrew mother when Pharaoh's daughter sought out a Hebrew nurse to take care of this child that she had found in the river. Um, and so he knew who he was. He knew he was a Hebrew. Although most of his childhood, those first 40 years, are spent in Pharaoh's household. And so he is educated in Acts 7. It talks, Stephen talks about how he was uh, very educated. He was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds, Stephen says. And so he's in a position of more influence and power and education and resources than any of his fellow Israelites. So he starts trying to take action to alleviate the burden of their, their slavery. But that's not when God appears to him. That's not when God commissions him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, God in his providence causes him to flee from the land of Egypt and spend 40 years in the land of Midian. He marries the daughter of a priest of Midian. Um, and spends 40 years as a shepherd. Why, why is it? Why, why 
why didn't God go ahead and commission Moses at 40 years old when he had spent all that time in Egypt? Why is it that he waits another 40 years? Well, you, you might look at that and say, well, he's working as a shepherd. We know some other people that God used as leaders who started out as shepherds, David, uh, that was good um, training for this type of care and compassionate leadership. You could say, well, he's actually spending time in the wilderness, which will later be a similar area of wilderness that he will be guiding the people through. Maybe he's becoming accustomed to the wilderness. But I think more than that, Moses needs to lose all confidence in his own abilities before God is able to use him the way he wants to. God spends 40 years humbling him to help him realize that within himself and his own abilities, he is not the man for the job. It's only God's strength that is going to equip him for the job. I think about this uh, as we apply it to ourselves, as I apply it to myself. You know, the, the young man who is just chomping at the bit to, to get before people and preach and thinks he, he has it all made and he's going to be an effective speaker and be able to be impactful on people, you know, he's probably not the best person for the job. The, the man who is campaigning to be an elder is probably not going to be the best elder. Often it's the people who recognize their own utter incapability that God is able to use for his purposes. That hits me right in between the eyes because for the majority of the last 15 years of my life, I've been a whole lot more like Moses at age 40 than Moses at age 80. Maybe we need to spend as much time working to clothe ourselves with humility as we seek to equip ourselves with any other skills or characteristics that God desires for us to have. He wants to use people who recognize just how incapable they are on their own so that he can mold and transform and equip them unto his glory. God doesn't want impressive workers. He wants impressionable workers. God doesn't want ambitious servants. He wants obedient servants. God is opposed to the proud, but shows forth his grace through the humble. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, you remember how he begins that sermon? Describing the character of kingdom citizens. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These aren't the people in society that we would lift up as being the powerful and glorious and prosperous people. These are the lowly who recognize their own spiritual poverty, not the rich, the prosperous, the powerful, the full, and the satisfied, but those who are empty that God might fill them up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, Paul reminds the brethren at Corinth uh, to consider their calling. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish to put to shame that which is wise. God chose the weak. God chose the lowly and the despised. Later on in that passage, it says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so as we think about God's call to us, as we think about our work in the Lord's service, Maybe we need to come face-to-face -face with our own incapabilities, 
with the limitations of our ability. And maybe that's exactly where God wants us before we can, in fact, be useful as a tool within his hand. And so as God approaches Moses here in Exodus, in Exodus 3, if you want to look with me in verse 11 and 12, notice Moses' initial response. He sees this burning bush, and though there is this consuming fire, it's not consumed. And so he approaches it, and God speaks to him and commissions him to go to Egypt. In verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses' initial response is, wait wait a second. You're talking to me? Who who am I? I'm nobody special. Uh, You know, I'm an 80-year-old. I've been spending the last 40 years out here shepherding sheep in Midian. Why do you want me? Do you notice what God's response is? It's not, well, Moses, you you do remember those 40 years that you spent in Egypt and all the education that you received. It's not what God says. He doesn't say, well, Moses, you have a lot of experience out here in the wilderness and you're going to need that. Or you have experience of leadership by by your role in, in taking care of these sheep. That's not what God says at all. In fact, God completely ignores Moses in the equation. He said, it's not about you. I'm going to be with you, and that's all that matters. What made Moses the right man for the job really had little to do with him at all. He was just a vessel for God to do his work, a tool in God's hands. I think we see some illustrations in this passage that that help us understand this concept. You you think about the, the very bush that Moses has just approached. Within itself, there's nothing special about that bush. It's just a desert shrub, right? But it's the the consuming fire that in God's grace and mercy chooses not to consume it that causes it to be something special, that causes this mountain to be holy ground. That's really a picture of Moses. Moses is nothing special. But the glory of God's power is going to work through him. He's going to be a vessel for the Lord. Uh, maybe another even more powerful illustration here as we get into chapter four, we're going to see him talk about the staff in Moses's hand. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to this more thoroughly in a little bit. But um, when Moses is seeking evidence to give to the Israelites, God says, well, what is that in your hand? He says, a staff. It's just the, the shepherd's staff that he's carrying around. But that staff I'd encourage you, as you do your Bible reading through Exodus, keep your eyes out for that staff. That staff that started out as just any other staff in Moses' hands becomes what is called in Exodus 4, in verse 20, the staff of God. And that is the staff that's going to be changed into the serpent. That's the staff that is going to part the waters of the Red Sea. That's the staff that is going to bring water out of the rock. That's the staff that's going to bring them victory over the people of Amalek. Was there anything special about the staff? No. It was just the staff that Moses happened to be carrying around. But God and his power was going to use that as a tool within his hands. That's exactly what he's going to do with Moses. We need to recognize 
that we are simply tools in God's hands, that we are vessels, and that it isn't about us. It's about God's power working through us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, and verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's not about us. It's about the gospel. He says later on in verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Imagine you were out in the wilderness and you came along a cave and inside this cave you have all these jars of treasure. Gold and jewels and silver. And you stop and you say, well, these clay pots are really interesting. You know, I, I, let, let me pour this out so I can take one of these pots home with me. Well, of course not. And yet, we are those clay pots. That's who we are. We, we are vessels simply to hold the glory and the power and the grace of God working through us. So it's not about us. That means we shouldn't be prideful. That also means we shouldn't be discouraged by our own inabilities. Because God is the one who's going to do the work. We simply need to be tools within his hands. And we need to make sure that's where the focus is. I'll be honest with you. I like people speaking well about me. I want to be known as someone who is sincere and passionate and honest and diligent, who's had a significant impact on other people's lives. But I'll tell you what. If my name is at the forefront of the legacy that I leave, I have failed. Matthew 5, after Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, being meek, he says in verse 14, or verse 16 rather, of Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may always speak well of you. Is that what he says? Let your light shine before others so that you may have a good reputation among brethren. Let your light shine before others so your name will be remembered in future generations. No, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And so we need to make sure that as we pursue God's work, that's what we're striving for. It's not that we're striving that people will think well of us and say good things about us. But that our focus is on giving the glory and honor to him. And so if we feel like, well, God, I'm nobody special. You know what God's saying? He's saying, exactly. That's why I want to use you. God didn't remind Moses of the good qualities that he possessed. He simply said, I'm going to be with you. And that's all that matters. Well, Moses is still insecure about this. His next response is basically that he doesn't know enough. He doesn't know what to tell the people of Israel. Look in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, literally Jehovah, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is an interesting question that Moses asks. He says, well, if I go to them and they ask me what your name is, what should I say? You know, this is far from the first time that the name of Jehovah has been used in the scriptures. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam and Eve give birth to Seth, it says at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Anytime you see Lord in all caps in most Bibles, that's the word Jehovah, the name that God uses here. All the way back in the beginning, in the first generations, they were calling on the name of Jehovah. It's the very name that Abraham used as he worshiped the Lord. In Genesis chapter 12, we see Abraham building an altar to Jehovah and worshiping, calling on the name of Jehovah. And so why is it all of a sudden that as we get to Exodus chapter 3, Moses doesn't know what God's name is? You know, it is true that God at times had used other names or other descriptions of himself. There are times that the word Elohim or Adonai are used as more general terms of deity or of Lord and master. There are times that he uses more descriptive terms like El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, or El Elyon, God Most High. Maybe Moses is saying, well, you know, what descriptive term do you want me to use here in, in describing who you are? Or is it possible that Moses really isn't that clear on who exactly God is? You know, when you think about Moses, certainly he understood that he was a Hebrew. For the first couple years of his life, he is being taken care of by his mother. But very quickly, he is swept up into uh, Pharaoh's household and he spends most of his lifetime among the Egyptians. And then he goes out into the wilderness and marries into the family of a priest of Midian. Now, we don't know what kind of priest we're talking about there. Uh, we do know Midian was a descendant of Abraham through Keturah, but we're going to find out later on in Exodus chapter 5 that Moses' children are not circumcised, uh, so they are not carrying on the faith of Abraham. Moses, at no point in the 80 years of his life, has really lived among the Hebrews. And as he is now being sent to them, you can imagine that he might feel like, well, you know, these people have a much more intimate knowledge of you than I do. Uh, you know, I haven't been raised constantly uh, being taught about the God of Abraham and the Isaac, of Isaac and Jacob. Yes, I know some about those stories, but, but what do I even say to them if they ask me about you? Whatever knowledge Moses has of the Lord, it seems to at best be a little bit cloudy here. So what is God's answer to him? He says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. What, what God is it that you're talking about? The God that actually exists. <laughs> the God that is the I am. And that's where the word Jehovah derives from, is from this verb of God's being, God's existence. Uh, and so distinguishing him from all other gods is the fact that he is the eternally existent one, that he was the I am 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the I am to Moses even now, and he says that he will be the I am to all generations. And so what Moses needs to know, what he needs to tell the Israelites is he's the real God. (laughs) That's the one. The God who exists, the I am, he's the one who has sent me to you. And God goes on in this passage to then describe exactly what he's going to do for Israel. How he is going to bring them out of bondage to Egypt and eventually lead them into this promised land. So Moses doesn't need to know everything. He just needs to have faith. He doesn't need to be able to answer every question. It's interesting in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, that's exactly what God tells Moses here. I am and this is what I'm going to do for my people. Moses doesn't need more knowledge here. He simply needs faith. Faith that God is and that God will do exactly what he says he will do. I think most times that we fail to do God's work, it's really not because of a lack of knowledge as much as it is because of a lack of faith. Because brethren, if we have enough knowledge to have genuine faith in our own lives and in our own hearts, then we have enough knowledge to share that faith with somebody else. We simply need to tell them why we have faith, why we believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, a passage that we often look at when we talk about being prepared to teach others about God's word, it says in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think sometimes I've looked at that passage and thought, well, that means I need to be prepared to make a defense uh, about any question of Bible doctrine. I need to be ready to you know, give a debate answer. Uh, I need to be re- ready to answer any question that might arise about the scriptures. Not, not that it's not good to learn and grow in all of those things, but what it's saying here is I need to be prepared to explain why I have hope. And if I do have hope, I should have enough knowledge to share why I have hope within me. That's what we need to focus on. Yes, I may not be able to answer every question, and that's okay. We're not supposed to present ourselves to people in the world as being some type of biblical scholar, that we're a theology expert, and that any question they have, we're we're ready to answer it. No, it's okay. In fact, we should be saying, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to have to study that. We need to make sure that we're not presenting ourselves as somebody who has the answer to every question. What we need to do is to share the faith and the hope that is within us and why it is we have that. I I think about the disciples of Jesus, the 12 apostles. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, it says he sends out the the 12 apostles there that he had just selected. And he tells them to go from city to city and to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How much did those 12 apostles know? (laughs) You know, they're, they're just 
fisherman, a tax collector, you know, this ragtag group of people. And you, know, you can imagine as they go from town to town, they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Somebody might come along and say, well, well when exactly is the kingdom coming? What, what exactly is the kingdom going to be like? Can you explain how this connects with the prophecies of the law and the prophets? You know, all the questions that they might have been asked, they, they really didn't have a whole lot of information. They didn't have a very clear picture of what the kingdom was going to be. But they simply needed to preach and proclaim what they did know. Brethren, if, if those 12 apostles can go out and tell people about the kingdom, how much more should you and I be able to? And this is not at all to be a cop-out that we shouldn't be growing in knowledge, that we shouldn't be equipping ourselves to understand more and more. But if you know enough to have faith, have genuine faith in your heart and in your life, if you know enough to have hope in Christ, you know enough to share that with others. Coming back to Moses here, after he is told to simply declare God as the eternally existent one, to declare what God is going to do for his people. He goes on in the beginning of chapter 4 to say, well, what if they don't believe me? If you want to read with me in chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, it says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. God goes on to tell him to put his hand inside his cloak and it comes out leprous. He says to put it back in, and it comes out healed. In verse 9, it says, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gives Moses three signs here to show God's power of transformation. It's interesting, these three signs refer to God's power in the animal kingdom. God's power over human ailment and God's power over the more general uh, powers of nature. Those are the exact powers that are going to be reflected in the 10 plagues later on. Many of them having to do with the animals, the Nile, uh, and even with the, the boils on, on the skin of the people. So God is, is showing forth his power first to his people, then to the Egyptians as well. But the common thread in all three of God's signs is God's power to transform. His power to transform for harm or for healing. Turning the staff into a serpent, but then also turning it back into the staff. Bringing about this leprosy upon Moses' hands, but then healing it once again. It's interesting that the last sign doesn't involve reversal, though. Did you notice that? Here he says, if they won't believe you after this sign and after that sign, then you show them this one other sign. And God transforms it into blood, but he doesn't transform it back. It seems that the message for those who will believe is that God not only has the power to judge, but also to heal. But for the ones who are refusing to believe, 
the ultimate uh, message is one of judgment, the judgment that is going to give way to the tin plugs coming upon Egypt itself. And so how does this apply to us? Well, God has given us ample evidence of his power within the scriptures, not just three signs, but countless signs recorded for us by eyewitnesses. And not just one eyewitness or two eyewitnesses, but several authors who cite numerous witnesses who would have been able to confirm or deny their words uh, to their original readers. Uh, we have four gospels that tell us about Jesus's life and his miracles. And at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John specifically writes uh, in conclusion, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So these Things that we have within the scriptures were not written as fairy tales. They weren't written to entertain. They weren't written just to, uh, you know, provide um, legends to be passed down from generation to generation. Their intent, and you can see this in each of the, the Gospels, their intent was to give legitimate historical testimony, to convince, to convict and even to convert us. And so as we think about what God has equipped us with, he has equipped us with plentiful signs that we can show forth his power. But I want to make this even more personal than that. I think we ourselves in our own lives can show forth God's power to transform. You notice in Exodus chapter 4 here, um, the first thing is God says, well, what is that in your hand? <laughs> it makes this very personal. In fact, the next sign is his hand itself. And he shows forth God's power to change and to transform things. If we have been changed by the Lord, if God has taken us and our burden of sin and guilt and transformed us to people who have been sanctified and purified and given hope, given joy, given peace and contentment in him, then we ourselves can be testaments of God's power to transform. We ourselves can share what God has done in our lives, that others might be able to see his transforming power in us. Again, not that we might you know, tell others how great we are and, and how far we've come and all the things that we've figured out. The gospel is not a self-help uh, message. The gospel is a message of what God has accomplished through us. And that is something that we can tell others about. In Mark chapter 5, verse 19, after Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, he tells him there in verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You know, you may not be able to effectively, at this point, pr present evidence from the scriptures. You may not be able to, to have enough knowledge to present, you know, the fulfilled prophecies or, or the different aspects that are archaeologically confirmed within the scriptures. But you at least know enough to tell people what God has done for you and his transforming power within your life. But God, God doesn't say here that they're all going to believe either, does he? He gives him those first two signs, but on that last sign, it seems there are going to be those who will not believe. But you show them anyway. You show them what God can do. 
At this point, Moses is running out of excuses, but notice what he says in verse 10 and following. It says, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? (laughs) Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Here Moses says, well, I'm I'm just not well equipped. I'm not your guy. I'm not eloquent. I'm not well spoken. It's interesting in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen talks about his past education, he specifically says that he was powerful in word and in deed. But that's not how Moses views himself here. He is not very equipped for this job. God's answer, in essence, is don't speak that way about my creation. He says, wait, wait a second. Who is it that made man's mouth? When you, when you speak that way about yourself, realize you're speaking that way about what I created. I know the abilities that I gave you. And he goes on to say, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Now, we we might think that God would say, who gives him the ability to speak and who gives him the ability to see and who gives him the ability to hear? But that's not what he says. He says, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? You know, many times we think, well, Well, that's not God's doing, right? That's part of a broken world. That's Satan's doing, that he causes us to have these uh, handicaps or these lack of, of, of capabilities in certain areas. But God says, no, that that's part of my design that he uh, creates in that way. And God doesn't make mistakes. Even those that we might deem less capable by earthly standards have still been given the tools and resources that God intends for them to have. So whatever lack of capability you may feel that you have, God gave you exactly what you have. And he knows what he's given you and he expects you to use it for him. God is aware of the abilities he has given you and hasn't given you, but the abilities you don't have don't give you a pass not to use the abilities that you do have for the Lord. This is the lesson of the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25, remember, Jesus tells this parable about a master who goes and leaves his possessions with his servants. Remember, it's the master's possessions. He entrusts one with five talents, he entrusts another with two, and he entrusts another with one. God didn't expect a five-talent return from the one-talent man, but he did expect him to use the one talent that he was given. And yet in the parable, Jesus picks out the one-talent man as the one who is fearful and decides to bury his talent. It's it's very easy when we feel like we don't have very many abilities or, or talents to use for the Lord, to think, well, it, it just, it doesn't matter that much if I use this or not. It's going to go unnoticed, you know, and, and I, I just don't feel very capable of handling this. Uh, you know, maybe I'm just better off not trying. Well, was the one talent man better off not trying? Certainly not. No, God knows exactly what he's given us. 
and he expects us to use it for him. The one-talent man is cast out of his master's presence. And so when we think about God's work for us, we might say, well, well, God, I'm not eloquent. So what? Did I say you need to be eloquent? I know what I've given you, and I expect you to use it. You may not be able to teach a class or present evangelistic lessons, but that doesn't mean you don't have work to do. That doesn't mean that you can't invite somebody to Bible class or get together with somebody and just read the scriptures. That doesn't mean you can't find ways to serve and to shine your light. Remember that God doesn't make mistakes, and he has entrusted each and every one of us with abilities and talents that we can use for him, no matter how we feel that we might compare to others. In verse 13, Moses makes one final plea. It says, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Moses says, Lord, I'm not the right one for the job. Somebody else, somebody else can do this better than I can. At this point, God becomes angry with him. And God doesn't let Moses off the hook, but he does give him reinforcements. God has designed it that we work together in his service and support each other, but I can't just let someone else do my work for me. I have a job to do. I have work to do. I have a talent that God has given me that I need to use in his service. And we do see a pattern in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10, Um, verse 1 and 2, we see Jesus sending out the 72. It says in verse 1 there, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Yes, it's good that we have that companionship, that we have that support, that we're working together with one another, just as Moses and Aaron here. But we all have a role to play. And you notice here, he sends out 72. 72 workers. And what does he tell them to pray? He says, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Pray that God will send out more into the harvest. Brethren, if 72 workers is few in comparison with the harvest out there, then we have a lot of work to do. We need to continue to be praying that God will send more workers into the harvest. And that means each and every one of us has a job to do. Yes, we need to support one another. We need to help one another in that. But that doesn't let me off the hook. We need each and every part doing its work. God has designed his church as a body that has many different parts, fulfilling many different roles. First Corinthians chapter 12, God uses this illustration of a body. And he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
You may think, well, I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to do that. Well, God gave you the abilities that you do have. And he expects you to use it for him. In fact, that's how he designed it, that each of us might have a different role in the body. So I might say, well, I, I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't have this ability. I don't have that ability. So what? You are a part of the body, right? So you have a work to do. And you have a role to fulfill. And that's how the body grows. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 I'm told that uh, from Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has a role for you to do. And the way that the body grows is not for one or two parts to do its work, but for each and every member with their unique talents, their unique strengths and abilities to be doing its work that the body might grow. Brethren, local churches should not have active and inactive members. We need to have all active members. We're going to have different roles. We're going to have different parts. But if this body is going to grow, each and every member needs to be active in doing the Lord's work. And so Moses doesn't get off the hook here. He gets help. But you notice there in verse 15, uh, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Somebody else can't do my role for me. I need to make sure that I'm seeking out to use what God has given me in his service, that his work might be furthered that his purposes might be accomplished, that he might be glorified. So what about us? Will we answer God's call? It's interesting when the Bible talks about our calling um, throughout the New Testament, very rarely is that talking about anything specific to one individual. Um, most of the time when the New Testament talks about our calling, it's talking about something that each and every one of us has received. In fact, a call that has gone out to the entire world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, after talking about the salvation and the sanctification that the brethren there have uh, experienced, he says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, after spending the first three chapters talking about the gospel, and the grace that has been offered to us, the riches of our inheritance in Christ. He goes on in Ephesians 4 and verse 1 saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you were called. Brethren, each and every one of us have been called by God, have been called through the gospel to experience his transforming power and to become a tool in his hand, a vessel for his glory. Are we being used by him? Have we heard his call? Have we responded to his call? We may have our excuses. We may say, well, God, I'm, I'm nobody special. Good. God, I don't know enough. Well, you know enough to have faith in me. Well, God, what if they don't believe me? I've given you enough evidence that you can show them. Well, God, I, I'm not as well equipped as so-and-so. That doesn't matter. I expect you to do what you can and them to do what they can. 
Are you working in the Lord's service today? Have you experienced his transforming power? Don't make excuses. Don't let fear hold you back. Step out in faith and allow God to use you as a tool within his hands, as a vessel for his glory. If there's anyone here who recognizes that they haven't been allowing God to do his work within their lives, that they've been too focused on self, whether that be in pride or in their own lack of ability, won't you make the change today? If there's anything that we can do to help you in responding to God's call and dedicating your life to him and washing away your sins in the waters of baptism and being raised to walk in newness of life, if there's any type of change that you need to make of a public nature, please let us know so that we can help you in that at this time as we stand and sing together.